Good morning, everybody. It's great to have you join us. It's great to have you in the house for this wonderful weekend. Trust that you are excited to finish over the next two weeks our Majestic series. Today we're going to talk about where Jesus is now. And then next week, we'll conclude with the Holy Spirit and uh, spend a week talking about him before Mother's Day. Can you believe that's here already? Yeah, you're all ready for summer and the beach and all these different things. I know I am, and it's great to be here and gathered together. It was a wonderful week last week. Thank you for joining us if you did. Um, I appreciate you surviving. We had quite a crowd here as uh, we, we gathered together. We had over 2,000 here gathered on campus, and uh, some of you felt that. So if you were in our parking lot for a long time, we apologize but uh, it's one Sunday, right? We'll get through it, and those are good, good problems to have. You know, last week we discussed tomorrow. We talked about how we can sometimes be tempted to worry about tomorrow. And our verse was, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough trouble in itself. Sufficient is today for the trouble therein, or you've got enough trouble today. So let me ask you, did you worry this past week? Did you find yourself worried about tomorrow at all? Did it come up in your thinking? Did you process, oh no, I'm beginning to dwell about tomorrow with fretful, fearful, or fabricating realities going on in my head? And don't they loop like replays? They just loop and loop and loop? It's exhausting. And it can really and truly wear you out. It's funny, I had some things happen even in my own life this past week, and I, I reached out to my dad. I said, hey, dad, I'm having trouble, jokingly, I'm having trouble applying my sermon on Sunday. And he said, Chris, don't apply your sermon. Apply Jesus. And that's exactly what I want to talk about this week, applying Jesus. You see, we can sometimes... And, and I know we're not doing this intentionally. I, at least I wouldn't think children of God would be. But we can sometimes treat Jesus right after Easter like he's not alive. And we can say things like, I know what he did. And he did that on the cross for me. And I know he's living today. And I know one day he's going to return. But, but we tend sometimes in our prayer life to even pray like, I'm on my own down here. Or he'll do his work, he'll finish it, he'll come back, but because I can't see him, because I can't maybe feel him hug me, as I can't hear him say what I should do or what college I should pick or what class I should enter or what my wife and I should do. Oh yes, we have the Holy Spirit prompting us, but you know what I mean. We'd love that tangible relationship, if you will. Well, today what we want to talk about is going into our tomorrows with a Jesus who is alive, who wants to help us, who can sympathize with what we're going through and wants to advocate for us against those voices of shame that might be pounding in our heads. It's so tempting to get in the rocking chair of worry. It gives us something to do, but we get nowhere. Today, I don't want us to approach the chair of worry. I want us to approach the throne of grace. And in order to do that, we need to know what Jesus is up to because that throne of grace has someone there and his name is High Priest. 
Yes, Jesus is our high priest. What does that mean, that Jesus is our high priest? I mean, I've heard of priests. Um, I've heard uh, scripture talk about priests. Like I think in the Old Testament there were priests, and then even in the New Testament there's some some priestly activity, but Jesus kind of confronted some of those guys. Um, I I know that, I've read uh, Peter. Peter talks a lot about me being a priest. So what's all this priest talk? Well, Hebrews 4 Verses 14 through 16 talk about his priestly ministry. It says this, since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let's hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then draw with confidence near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you know, I'm gonna I'm I'm sneak in a little interpretation. We're gonna work this maybe more through the service, but that in time of need, you can also almost read that this way. To help us in just the nick of time. In just the moment you need it, right when you need it, He wants to offer you grace. And see, sometimes, if we're not applying that, we go into the future, (laughs) we go to our rocker, and we start navigating problems that we might be facing next year because we're really smart, and we've got the future kind of figured out. We kind of know different things. We're spotting different trends. But you never notice, we kind of forget that in the moment next year where that thing might happen to us that is a threat, in that moment next year, Jesus is going to be there because he's alive. He's going to quiet that rocker because he is the high priest. And the better we understand what a high priest did and this high priest does, the more informed it's going to make those moments in our life where we're tempted to get on that rocker. I pray that the Lord will use this message to remind you who you pray to and bring you confidence to approach him because the enemy, the difficulties of world, as well as uncertainty, will continue to pound at your head things that might keep your prayer life from being as effective as it could be. Heavenly Father, use this message today to teach us about the high priest. May we read this with the wow and the amazement of what this means and how, if correctly applied to our life, could be absolutely life-changing. And so we'll pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I read through the verse, and you might have been hearing it, you know, and you're kind of trying to track with me, and you're definitely kind of interested in this high priest, but let's start to unpack it. Hebrews 4, 14 says this, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So since, now we know Hebrews, which I'm telling you is a delicious book. If you like to snack on some scripture, okay, Hebrews is your book. I mean, it is amazing. Somebody ought to preach Hebrews from this pulpit someday. And, and I'm telling you, this book is one of my favorites, and, and, and we're going to unpack it. No, no, you know what? We're going to do better. We're going to get out the whole tent on this thing. Have you ever set up a tent? Have you ever set up a tent when it's raining? Oh, oh, Right. Have you ever questioned why you ever went camping? No, 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 I didn't want to go there. I didn't want to go there. But but you know there's an aspect of setting up a tent and pitching it. You got to unpack it. You got to go through the details. You got to set it up in a correct order. Well, well, we're going to pitch a tent. We're going to unpack this verse since. 
Okay, so the Hebrew writer was writing specifically to Jewish Christians who had left Judaism and have made a confession now that they're following Jesus Christ and the gospel. But they're being persecuted for that by other Judaizers who are kind of saying, how could you dare leave that? What's wrong with you? How would you do something like that? And the persecution and the pressure of their shame and guilt is making them go, should we kind of go back to the religiosity of the Jewish system? Should we kind of get back to that tradition then follow this Jesus? I mean, they're getting a little wavered in their faith. Have you ever been kind of like made fun of for something you believe and it starts kind of shaking your faith a little bit? Well, the Hebrew author is writing to people like that and he's like, since we have a great high priest and everybody in the room's like, yeah, yeah, high priests, absolutely. What? What were these high priests? Well, what they were picturing in their head most likely looked like someone like this. This is someone dressed in a priestly garment. They would have had a golden crown or a miter, okay, which had engraved on it the holiness to the Lord. It it spoke towards intellectual devotion to Yahweh. They would have had a breastplate, rectangle, made from gold, and on it had gemstones, 12 gems. You wanna know why? There were 12 tribes. So each gem represented a tribe. And one of those gems represented the tribe of Levi, which was the Levitical tribe, which was the tribe that performed the priestly ministries. Now, these gemstones represented all the tribes. So there you have over here the ephod, which was sky blue representing heaven, and it had a robe underneath. And then on the bottom of the robe, there were bells so that he could be heard and that he was ministering, right? And then over on this side was the lunic, lunic, excuse me, linen tunic made of pure linen. It was white, and it was the only part that was allowed to touch the priest, okay? And then he was in bare feet, so it would allow him to touch the ground of God as he walked throughout the tabernacle court. Now, this is the outfit or garment of a high priest, but there were also priests, and they would have just had that white tunic. But the people weren't allowed to focus on any of those duties. They were only to bring their sacrifice. You see, God set up two systems, the system of law that he gave to Moses, the 10 commandments. Do you know the 10 commandments? Most people know 10 coffee companies better than the 10 commandments. But the 10 commandments, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, were to teach the people what they're not to do. For they were to learn from this like a school teacher. But God knew they wouldn't be able to fulfill the law. No matter what, this law was gonna show them that they can't fulfill it. And so he set up a sacrificial system as well so that when the people failed the law, they could offer a sacrifice for their sin, not themselves, but a substitute, a spotless lamb, would be offered at the tabernacle and would die for their sin. For the law reminded them, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. And so not their blood was shed, but a lamb's blood was shed, innocent for them. And it was to remind them that someone or something had died for them. And so where was this to be set up? Well, God told Moses to take people to the foot of Mount Sinai. And it was there at Mount Sinai where God would set up the tabernacle. 
Go there with me for a minute. As we, as we fly in, the tribes of Israel would be all surrounding this tabernacle that God gave intimate design. Let's stop there. As you look at this tabernacle, you can see that around it was this fence made of white linen. Now, it was approximately 150 feet by 75 feet. To give you an idea, if you're in the room today, this room is about 100 feet, 100 feet long, and I wish it was 75 feet deep, but it's not. Um, it's around 50 feet deep. We'll extend it in the back, and you'll have that idea, but this gives you an idea of how big the tabernacle was. So it was not massive, per se. Solomon's temple, that was the one made of massive gold, is way bigger than this, but this was the tabernacle that traveled with the Israelites when they went through the wilderness wanderings. And it was in this tabernacle that God would come and dwell with them. You see, the surrounding nations had gods made of wood. They had idols. God wanted to show Israel that he is a relational God. He wants to live with them. He wants to dwell with them. And in order for a holy God to dwell with sinful man, they needed to create boundaries. The first boundary is this white linen fence. God gave exact dimensions for it. And then out front, there was a purple gate. Now, what's interesting is the tabernacle is a powerful illustration of how colorful and how God is such a designer, okay? Because they would have all just been straight tan. In fact, I wore tan to symbolize it, okay? I mean, they would have just been tan everything in the desert wanderings. But God said, I want purple, I want royals, I want blues to represent things. And he was bringing them incredible design because he wanted to teach them about being loyal to Yahweh. There's only one way in, this gate. And that was the only way to get into it. So the white fence said, stay away. The gate said, come in, but come in this way way. As you walk in to the gate, you would see the two pieces of furniture in the inner court and then the place of the Holy of Holies and the holy place in the tabernacle building itself. And so if you were in one of the tents outside, let's zoom out, as, as, a, as if you were in one of the tents in the surrounding areas, we can go ahead and play now. You lived very differently than the tabernacle, but you would take a spotless lamb, you would place your head on it, you confess your sin, and then you would go into the gate. They were allowed to go into what they would first see as the bronze altar. Now the bronze altar is the place where the priests would then kill the lamb and then take it and they'd burn it as a substitute for the worshiper. And then let's stop. Well, let's keep going right. Yeah, keep going right there. They would take the blood and put it around the four corners, okay? And, and these were all symbolics of something th Jesus was teaching, that God was teaching. Let's stop there. And then right behind it was the laver. Go ahead and play a little bit since I, I missed you. Right here was the laver. This was the bronze laver. And so after the sacrifice, only the priests could go to the bronze laver. And did you know what it was made out of? Yeah, the glasses of the women of the, of, the, of the tribes, they made it out of this. Now, there's nothing special about the water, per se, but what the priests would do is they'd go and they'd wash their hands. And so we have a sacrificial system where a spotless lamb is sacrificed, and now we have the washing symbolizing of cleansing before entering into the holy place. We can go and play a little bit. Now, the holy place was unique in the fact that it was built out of wood, 
with gold around it. So acacia wood with gold around it. And this gold, oh, how did that stand out in the middle of the desert? But God put four coverings over it. He asked for them specifically. The first one, he wanted cherubim and seraphim woven into a purple yarn that would serve as the roof of the holy place. Then you had the goat's hair over the top of that that would lay over the sides. Then ram skin dyed red, symbolizing sacrifice. And over top of that, kind of like a sackcloth material, that was made from badger skin, many believe. And so this holy place was only to be entered by the priests. Now inside the holy place, there's a veil and only the high priest can go behind the veil. Anybody remember what's inside this holy place? Let's be a priest and go in for a minute. If we enter into the holy place, we'll see some things right away. The first thing we see is the altar of incense and that smoke would rise as if prayers ascending to God. Over here on the left, we see the menorah or the light. It was the only light in the holy place and it was to shine day and night. On the other side was the showbread, 12 loaves. Even though the tribes were different in size and strength, those 12 loaves were the same and they were to be eaten by the priests. But it was this altar of incense that was a special place. It's where the prayers would arise like a sweet aroma to God, reminding them that he hears them. But right behind the altar of incense, let's stop there, we have the veil that kept even the priests away from what's called the Holy of Holies, where God would come and dwell. Now, entered one time a year by the great high priest. He would offer a sacrifice for the entire nation for that year. He would go in and sprinkle the blood over the mercy seat and God would fill the holy place and forgive them of their sins for that year. Let's go into the holy of holies here. God asked for cherubim to be woven into that veil. We're gonna enter through the veil and we'll see the Ark of the Covenant inside. Now the mercy seat being lifted off there inside the Ark of Covenant, you have the pot of manna, Jehovah Jireh, you have the 10 commandments, and you have Aaron's rod that budded. On top of that is the mercy seat where the cherubim facing one another, this is where the priest would sprinkle the blood to atone for the sins of the people that year. And he would do this yearly. As we zoom out of the tabernacle, We ask ourselves a bigger question. What was God teaching? What was God showing them? Why such incredible symbolism and accuracy to the dimensions of how it was to be done? God was painting a picture and it was all pointing towards Jesus. If you go into the holy place with this perspective, you see that the light, I am, is the light to Israel. He is their light. Who said, I am the light of the world? Jesus did. Israel, their prayers are heard. I am, here's your prayers. Who is said to be interceding for us? Jesus is. I am reigns over Israel, the Ark of the Covenant reminds us. Who is our great coming king? I am is separate from Israel. Jesus, we know, is holy. I am fellowships with Israel. It's Jesus who said, I am the bread of life. 
But as I zoom out, I realize that even the court represents these things. The entering in and seeing this altar where the lamb was sacrificed, I am forgives, I am a forgiving God. He's reminding them they're a unique nation with a forgiving God. It's Jesus who forgives us. I am cleanses Israel. He, he can wash away sin with the blood sacrificed. I am dwells with Israel. He has come and he is with them, but yet I am is separate from Israel. He is holy. This is why I get excited when I read verses that say, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Then if you understand the word, it's a theological word, it's called incarnation. You know what it means? The word incarnation is the act of being made you want to know? The act of being made flesh. God taking on flesh. Jesus was fully God and fully man. Why did he pass through the heavens to do that? So that he could save us from our sins. How can he save us from our sins? By being the lamb of God that dies for our sin being the substitute of that. He was born under the law as a baby so that he could die and fulfill the law in his perfect life. And those who know Jesus Christ as their savior, his righteousness, his perfect life is what's called imputed to you. It's given to you. It's as if when you pray to God, he treats you as if you lived the life of Jesus Christ. What? Yes, because he did that for us. The Gospel of John, he talks about this incarnation in what's called the prologue. The Gospel of John is phenomenally written. If you love scholarly work on John, there are some books out there by D.A. Carson that talk about the prologue, which is the beginning. It's like you walk into this foyer and he tells you what all these doors that he's gonna tell you about what happens in the book of John. In that prologue, he begins by saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Say, who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus, the Logos, the word. Well, then why didn't John just say, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God? He could, but at that time period, there was some theological persecution going on in the church, where they were saying things like, well, this is the word now, and now the word is this, and now we trust this word. And John's like, you know what? The word is God. He is the Logos, and it's Jesus. He was a person that was with God in the beginning. And he goes through his prologue, and in verse 14, here's what gets interesting in regards to the high priest. He says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This Jesus is God's son. He's passed through the heavens, his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Have you ever said, why is it only begotten? What does that mean? It speaks to his preeminence, 
but it also speaks to that he's the one of a kind. He wasn't created, he's God, but he's one of a kind. He took on flesh, but where it really gets me is if you understand the Greek underneath the English, See, the English here is a translation from the Greek, but this dwelt among us is interesting. You could translate this this way. And the word became flesh and pitched his tent with us. You can get even deeper into the language and translate it this way. And the word became flesh and tabernacled with us. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this priestly system because he is currently serving as our great high priest. So since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. The Hebrew author knows that some of these Jewish Christians are are being tempted to go back to Judaism. He's saying, hold fast to the gospel. Hold fast to what you believed in. Hold fast. And those who are truly saved, not just by word of mouth, but those who truly are saved will hold fast because we don't have a high priest. Understand, you don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. You don't have a high priest who doesn't get it. Have you ever spoken to someone about something you're dealing with in your work and they don't get it? And they're trying to get it. They're a good friend. Oh, you know what you could do? And as they're telling you what you could do, you're going, you realize how impossible it is for me to do what you're saying? And you're going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, of course, of course. Can't do that. It's ridiculous to think I could do that. We're way too far down the road to do anything like that. You know, one thing I did one time, and you appreciate it, but you can tell that they truly can't sympathize. The word carries the idea to suffer with. Jesus can suffer with all of us because there's nothing we're going to go through in the weakness of being humans that he can't say, I get that. Because he is able to sympathize. He is able to suffer with us. Let's just think for a second. You realize Jesus lived some 33 years? And about 30 of those years we don't have documented? You got about three of his years documented in scripture. Would you like to know a little bit more? I would. What was it like? Keep in mind, maybe, maybe, maybe you're in construction. Okay, you like working with wood or you like building things or whatever. Jesus grew up in a carpenter's home. If there's someone who can sympathize with making a wall and it's slightly wrong compared to the way dad wanted it, I bet it's Jesus. Have you ever done something on a construction site only to take the criticism of all the guys? I know construction sites are full of grace, right? No way, right? Yo, what are you doing there, big boy? Ugh. Hey, look, what they, they bring it up for the next seven years, don't they, guys? Like next eight years, I remember that time. All right, really? You wonder sometimes how many times Joseph came in and goes, Jesus, Jesus, no, 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 no. And he wasn't cursing or nothing. Jesus, 
Jesus. Not like that. Let me show you. No, no, Jesus would have built everything perfect. He was human. It's not a sin to make a mistake as you're growing and maturing and growing in things like that. But he can sympathize with the pressures of wanting to do a good job for dad. He can sympathize with the, I'd rather not be made fun of for this. He can sympathize with trying to do something and it being hard and difficult work. He can sympathize even with temptation. What? Yeah. He can sympathize even with temptations. For the Hebrew author tells me in verse 15 that he was one who in every respect has been tempted as are we, yet without sin. What? He understands temptation? Of course he does. And far more than we could ever understand it because he's not planning on ever giving in You've heard me joke before about a buddy. There was an extra slice of pizza and we had said which ones were gonna eat the pizza. And somebody said, I bet you're tempted to eat that last piece. He said, no, I'm not. And he grabbed it and ate it. You see, temptation is only there if we're planning on resisting it. He wasn't planning on resisting. He just had it. There's no temptation here. I'm just gonna do it. Jesus was never gonna do it. And so his temptations be like a hundredfold. I heard one author say, it'd be like Jesus is that boulder on the shore side and the waves are hitting it, but it's not gonna move. So it takes every wave. He's not the pebbles on the shore that yield to every wave and get knocked around. He's taken them all. I've heard somebody else say, it's kind of like the prize fighter who's got a great chin. He goes in and the contender's pounding him and pounding him, took him up on the hillside. All this could be yours, Jesus. Tempted him, tempted him, and hit him, and hit him. But Jesus has got a great chin. I remember growing up watching Mike Tyson fights with my buddies. We gather around for this stuff, like guys gather around the UFC and all that stuff fighting now. And um, we'd watch this. And then afterwards, we all thought we were ready. And so we grab our pillows that were sitting like on the couches and we put them in our hands and then we'd, we'd, we'd fight each other. And it really always stayed really calm. No, no, no. One guy takes a punch he didn't really like and he gets ugly, right? And then we have to go out and like kind of make up afterwards. But, but one guy, he, he, he would just take blows and we we're all like, he's got a great chin on him. Jesus has an incredible chin and he gets it and he understands it. I'm not talking to a God who is distant or doesn't understand what I'm going through or who doesn't even have sympathy for how tough it is to live in God's will. How hard it is. Have you ever said that? It's kind of hard being a Christian, especially in today's world. It's getting hard. Jesus, I know. You gotta have a kind of a stiff chin, don't you? Yeah, it hurts sometimes. Oh, I know. Imagine what it felt like to get kissed by one of your best friends knowing he's betraying you, oh, it hurts. Imagine having people you entrusted things to let you down, I got it. Do you know that, I know that one too. I can sympathize, but he didn't sin. Is it a real temptation if he wasn't gonna sin? Let me ask you this, 
Have you ever stood by a battleship? They're unbelievable. They're incredible, these battleships. When you ever just step back and look at them, you're like, wow, think about the artillery on these things. Have you ever seen a, a battleship out in the ocean coming after your sailboat? No, I haven't either, but I can imagine that's terrifying. Because my sailboat could declare war on that battleship. Let's fight, guys. Turn the sail. But there ain't no chance of that battleship losing. Is our sailboat's attack a real attack? Oh, yeah. But it's got no chance. I remember sitting around seminary and the guys would talk about what's called the impeccability of God. Is God impeccable? Which means, was he able to sin and didn't? Or is he not able to sin? Everybody sit around. And then Chris Heller would answer. He wasn't able to sin, guys. Wow, well, if he sinned, he's not God. And so if God can't sin, then he couldn't sin or he wouldn't be God. Finish your dinners. Now, where I got all those answers, are calling my dad. Hey, dad, could Jesus sin? No? Okay, okay, I got it. Thanks. We gain a lot of confidence when we go to other people for affirmation, just like we can get a lot of confidence if we go to Jesus for affirmation. You say, what? I can go to this great high priest? Well, the former priests, the former priests, they were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Hebrews continues and says this, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Because of this, he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for all those people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. He doesn't have to keep going back and sacrificing. Did you notice when we were going through the tabernacle and the holy place, there were no chairs inside? I think I'd like to camp out there. But the priest's work is never done. Here scripture tells me Jesus went in. He died on the cross. He paid for sin once and for all. And he sat down. This is how I see my Jesus when I'm filled with worry. This is how I wanna see Jesus when I'm pacing around my house. This is how I wanna see Jesus when I'm tempted to worry. I wanna see him sitting there. I finished the work. You have nothing to fear about tomorrow. You have nothing to fret about the unknown. And you have nothing to fabricate that I won't be standing right next to you in that moment to help you. I feel if all this is true, there's a conclusion coming, and there is. But first, let's ask a question. What is Jesus doing right now? Okay, I can't see him. He's going to return. What is he doing right now? I suppose four things that we can look at today. There may be more. One, he is sustaining. He is in control of all things. It's called sovereignty. So anything that happens to me has to go through him. He's got to allow it. And because there's evil in this world, some bad things, definitely terrible, terrible, terrible things may happen. 
but I have to trust that he will use it for good even if I don't know why. Why? Because he is before all things and in him all things hold together and he is the head of the body, the church. So he's not only sustaining, he is leading his church. This is one of the reasons your pastoral staff and deacons go out of their way to pray things through because we want to make sure we never in our own strength make decisions without being bathed in prayer. And so sometimes it takes a little while. We have a joke around here. Our church is a barge, not a motorboat. We take slow turns that take a long time and you're like, are you going to do it already? Versus quick, subtle movements that don't have prayer. Would you pray, continue to pray that your leaders operate that way, that we're in prayer. Lead your home that way. But if you're leading the church, specifically if you're a pastor even listening today, make sure that you're running all those visions and ideas through Jesus, even if they're difficult, even if there's struggle in the path. He is sustaining things and leading things. What else is he doing? He's preparing. Yeah, yeah. Scripture says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm gonna come again and I'll take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. There's nothing that softens a dad up like a little girl. And there's nothing more fun for a dad than to paint her room as long as she's not 17. Right around 11 and 12, you can do it. There is a window of opportunity there. But young parents, you maybe had your first nursery in your room, you got your apartment, and you're like, oh, right, right, it's gonna be the place of death at night for the rest of the year, right? But it looks so cute before they come and then it becomes the place where you're going in half, half exhausted, right? But we paint it all up and it looks wonderful. My name is Christopher Robin, so mine was a Christopher Robin theme. But we make it all, oh, it's gonna be so great, but they got opinions around 10 or 11. Some of you have children, they got opinions around three. And I remember our daughter wanted a tree on one of her rooms, in, in her room, one of her rooms, like we gave her multiple, a tree on one of her walls. And so as a dad, I wanted to paint it all up and make it special, you know? And we had this whole idea, and there were days she'd go to school and I'd be painting leaves and getting it ready because I wanted to see her come in the room and go, wow. I remember that we, we hung this hanging chair that she could swing in her room. I was like, dad of the year. Because you wanted to see, wow, Jesus knows me. He knows you. He knows what we love. He knows our joys. And he's like a dad or a mom preparing his kids a room, knowing what gets them excited. Oh, I can't wait for heaven. And Jesus is there preparing a place for me. Third, I, I'm told he's waiting what? Yeah, yeah. In Hebrews 10, 12 through 13, it says, but when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It doesn't mean that Jesus never is ever moving, okay? It's a place of authority, okay? Um, but he's waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So Jesus is in heaven waiting. He's not stressing out about the state of the world. Nope, he's waiting. Could he stop waiting? Wouldn't we all love that? But he's waiting. He's not stressed about it. He's not worried about it. He's not like, oh no, we didn't see 2022 coming. I get up, but I have to sit. No, 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 not stressed at all. 
I pray to a God who's not stressed at all by the state of the world. He's waiting. And then four, I see that he's ministering. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of God, of the throne, excuse me, of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places. Okay, so I'm picturing the holy place in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So Jesus is around that throne. He's ministering. He's a part of my life. He's sending the Holy Spirit we'll talk about in the, in the coming weeks. But, but Jesus is there, and, and there's an encouragement by the Hebrew writer to say, based on the fact you have this great, awesome, high priest, come. What? Come. Come, yeah. Let us then draw with confidence near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You might be a coach out there, maybe a little league coach, and you know the difference between a confident athlete and a non-confident athlete. And the great coaches talk about how the, the non-confident athlete isn't unable to. The great coaches find a way to make the non-confident athlete confident. I've seen little boys walk up to the plate and the plate's right there and they face the pitcher holding the bat. Nobody, turn, turn, huh? Turn, okay, turn, okay. And there's always one in the crowd, right? He's not even gonna swing! Appreciate those people. Hands are shaking. Tree, tree! He just walks back. And we say, oh, he lacks confidence and then the next one comes in. What's up, dad? And when they fail, they seem to cry too sometimes. It's almost like a bravado with the same lack of confidence as the other one. So what kind of confidence are we talking about? See, the confidence is not in ourselves, amen? The confidence is who we're going to, that they're gonna receive us. How? With condemnation? How could you not swing? With, 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 with shame? What are you doing up there? With, with, with guilt? should know better or with grace. I know what it's like to strike out too. Been there. Or with grace. Hey bud, just because you weren't ready this time doesn't mean you won't next. Or with grace. Hey, you hear that over there? That's not true of my opinion of you. What kind of throne am I going to? As a parent, who am I emulating the most? As a teacher, as a leader, who am I emulating the most? I'm told it's a throne of grace and this is so important. This is so important, especially older generation. Don't be so hard on the younger generation. You didn't have the pressures of the social media world that are crippling our country with anxiety. We need some grace here. It's difficult to post something because they've been given platforms they didn't really deserve or should have yet and get shot at for comment sections or for shooting at people. They're not filled with awesome unless they're your best friends. And some of them even have some manipulation techniques, right girls? You're getting things like, what an idiot, such a loser. What a failure every time and comments that used to be reserved for sports teams have become now shot at people, especially those who are on stages. 
happen when we get small doses of stages, we realize how not fun they are. For stages bring criticism. And and hey, there's nothing wrong with being a critical thinker. In fact, I, I quote this often. Being a critical thinker is a skill, but being a critical person is a snare. It's a snare because what happens is you fall into the traps of those criticisms and you join with the crowds that mock. Losers, they fail every time. You join with the crowds that go, what a wimp, they're so weak. You join with the crowd that says they're idiots. Didn't they think of that? Or even shame. That's embarrassing. How, how could you ever do that? Or, oh, this is disturbing. How would you? I would never allow that if I... And, and we, we hear all these things, but what happens is when we join the voice of the critic, what happens is we fail. And those same criticisms we were pouring onto everybody else, the enemy now uses at you. How could I do that? I'm such an idiot. Oh my word, why didn't we think of that? Why didn't we think of that? Oh man, we, got, we can't let that happen. Somebody should have thought of that. Oh my word, I'm such an idiot for that. Oh my goodness, I can't do that. I can't, I, we gotta get out of this. I mean, I, this whole thing, I can't, there's no escape for me, God. Now I'm kind of stuck in this. I'm like, I'm stuck in this, God. I, I don't even know, and, and it's shame on you. You should know better. Oh, and all you hear are these voices because the, the world we're living in of criticism, what happens is we hear things like, hey, hey, great job. You got straight A's, and we hear, okay, I have to get straight A's to get great job. I have to get straight A's to hear the words, great job. We don't get, hey, I love your effort. That's awesome. A's, awesome, but your effort was great. We hear the performance because we're living in this performance world, and it's rattling our society. So I want somewhere I can go when I fail and all the voices in my head come after me, when I've decided something that people don't like and all the voices in my head come after me, when I make a decision based on the facts I have and all the voices come at me, to go to, that's not gonna destroy me. I've often said to people in a very loving tone, I don't think there's anyone who hates you as much as you hate yourself. I know. Anxiety weighs the heart down, but a kind word cheers it up. So let's get some kind words. Let's go to the throne of grace. He offers us three things. First, he is continually sympathizing with you. Every time you go to Jesus, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. He can deal gently because he's sympathizing with us. And please understand, there's a difference between empathy and sympathy. There's a story of a mother. She heard that there were some puppies for sale. Do you like dogs? She heard there were some puppies for sale, and she heard that there was one specific puppy in the litter that had a problem with its leg and couldn't walk on all four. And so she had empathy on that little puppy, and she wanted to go meet him. She grabbed her son, and her son said he would love to go and see the puppies. And she said, we're going to go maybe pick one out. And so they went with empathy in her mind for this puppy. But it'll be intriguing if her son thinks the same. 
Well, they get to the puppies and they look them over and the boy's looking them off. And he goes, can I hold that one? And it's the puppy with a bad leg. And the boy picks the puppy up and holds it. He says, I want this one, mommy. She goes, I knew you would. And the guy, please understand that that puppy is not going to be able to walk on that leg. The other ones, they, they're fine, but that one's not fine. I mean, maybe I could reduce the rate or something if you're really interested, but, but that one can't walk. And the boy looked at his mom and smiled. She goes, that's the one we want. And she lifted up his pant leg to show a prosthetic leg the boy had. See, the mom had empathy on the puppy. The boy had sympathy on the puppy. Why? Because the boy understood what it's like to have a bad leg. Jesus gets it, guys. You're not talking to somebody who doesn't get it. And because of that, did you know he's praying for you? I love this guy. I do too. He sympathizes with me, yeah. And he loves me, yeah. And he's praying for me all the time. Scripture says right now he's interceding. Therefore, he is able to save us forever, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I remember when I first started in pastoral ministry, I got to pray with one of these unbelievable pastors. Like he like spoke with God, it felt like, right? And he's got me wearing a chair. He said, Lord, just pray for Chris. And, and Jesus, I'm gonna ask you to be praying for Chris as well. And Jesus, be praying for their church. I'm like, Jesus, be praying for Chris? I'm like this in the prayer. Like, yeah, amen. That's awesome. We know you're interceding. We know you're praying. He's praying like, I'm like, man, this is great. And I've had that image of Jesus praying for me. And there are so many times in my prayer life, Jesus, I'm having trouble with this spot. Could you zero in on that for me? Could you zero in for me right now on that spot? Because he always lives to make intercession for me. I love this guy. Third, he advocates for me. My little children, I'm writing these things so that you might not sin. I don't want you to sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Why is it so important that Jesus advocates for me? Because I fail. I mess up. And I feel like I come to the throne of shame. How could you call yourself a Christian? Look at you. Look at your family. Look at your life. Look what happened. How you've done it. It's all you hear in those moments. And the rocker starts going. It gives us something to do. We get nowhere and it cripples the day. And Jesus comes in. Because I always just sense this courtroom and go, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, hey, hey. He's with me. He's with me. What are you all saying about him? He's, he's a failure. He is a victor in my name, aren't you? Yeah. You ever have somebody stand up for you? Yeah, what he said. This is what Jesus does. He steps up for us. Stop calling my child a loser. They're a victor. You shut your mouth, devil. He's mine. And if we don't have the verses, if we don't have a great high priest, then we are going to be crippled by the voices of shame that we are saying to ourselves. We don't need a comment section. Have you ever noticed? He's advocating for us. 
But what really has been sticking out to me and what really has been making me think is we just did a series in Peter and Peter told me that I am a priest. Jesus, our priest, mediates for us between God and man. We don't need to go to a man. We don't need to go to anyone. We can have direct access because of his work on the cross. That's why the, ta- the veil was torn down so we can enter in. And Peter says because of that, we are part of the priesthood. In fact, he says you're being built up together, church. You yourselves are like living stones. You're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy royal priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. One time I was praying and I finished the prayer as a little boy. I said, in Jesus' name, amen. And my dad stopped me. He goes, do you know why you say in Jesus' name? And I thought, yeah, because you do, dad. We say in Jesus' name because we don't have access to the Father if it weren't for the work of Jesus. Don't use it just as a tail end to your prayer. Let it be a reminder that I don't even get to talk to the God of the universe unless it's through Jesus' name I pray. It's grown in my spiritual life to remind me that I should pray things according to his name. But that's been a great reminder that I am allowed access. I'm a priest. I can go in and talk to my heavenly father. So how am I doing with the people around me right now? If I'm to act as a priest, am I pushing failure on them? Or am I coming around saying, hey, I can relate to that. I might not be able to sympathize, but I can empathize. I'm praying for you. In fact, I'm gonna put that on my prayer list. I'm gonna be interceding for you. How am I doing? Sometimes, parents, isn't it easy to just criticize and criticize and criticize? Imagine if we came along instead and said, how can I help? What can I be praying? And I understand life gets pretty stinking hard. Instead of criticizing your husband over and over, what if you came alongside and said, I bet it's pretty tough. I don't know what you're going through with work, but I'll tell you what, we both like Panera Bread. We need more voices of grace in our society, amen? I know I need it. And so how am I acting as a child of God? To the people around me, if I'm a coach, what have I learned today? If I'm a teacher, what have I learned? But if, but if, but if I let them, if you show them grace, you'll be like Christ. It's not permission for license. Please don't take that, that's another message. Let this be a reminder for the times we fail, for the times we're weak, I'm weak, God. I don't have the strength to tackle what you've laid in front of me. Hey, hey, it's okay to ask for help. It is? I'm not soft? No, it's okay to ask for help. But the enemy's over there telling me I'm a wimp and I should be a better father or dad or husband or I should be a better mom and look at the other moms. They're way better than me. Hey, hey, it's okay to ask for help. When you pray to a great high priest... The enemy goes running. 
And that's why he's gone out of his way to make sure we do not have a good picture of how loving and kind and wonderful Jesus is. And he's alive and he's loving to talk to you and give you grace in just the nick of time. Apply it this week. It'll change your prayer life. Heavenly Father, the truth of the matter is many of us are much more familiar with the voice of condemnation and shame than we are the voice of grace. And therefore, we apply it to other people. But if we're honest, we apply it right to ourselves. And so, Lord, for anybody stuck in the rocking chair, shaming themselves over what's going on in their life, I pray that they would bring it to you. And if they have done something wrong, that they would confess their sin. You're faithful and just to forgive them of their sin and to cleanse them from all unrighteousness. But I also pray that they would receive your grace. That you love us despite our performance. You're praying for us. And you know how difficult this world can be. You're a God of a million chances. And there's nothing we could ever do or ever say that could make you love us less. So therefore, instead of avoiding you when the tough times come, instead of going to people, instead of going to other things, may we go to the great high priest and experience sympathy, prayer, and advocacy against anything that we're pounding in our heads against ourselves. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.